My name is Fatou Bensouda, and I am the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court. Allow me at the outset to express my gratitude to the Codification Division of the Office of Legal Affairs of the United Nations for their gracious invitation to make this modest contribution to the audiovisual library of International Law Project, and more generally, to commend them for this innovative and rich resource created to promote the study and understanding of international law. I can only praise these efforts, and I am honored to take part in this lecture series. I would like to focus this lecture on the work of the Office of the Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, highlighting some of its most notable activities, strategies, and policies, and to explain how, through these activities, it is contributing to the fight against impunity for the perpetrators of the most serious crimes of concern to the international community. I will also outline some of the challenges faced by the office in the exercise of its mandate. And finally, I will share with you some reflections on the International Criminal Court, what it stands for, its raison d'etre, and its place in the world. The global aspiration to establish the international rule of law through the vector of international criminal justice is, by now, no longer just a goal, but a work in progress. It is tangible in many forms, not the least in the form of the International Criminal Court and the ever-growing complementary Rome Statute system of international criminal justice. As such, I wish to commence this lecture by recalling the origins of the innovative legal design of the Rome Statute that established the ICC. Seventy years ago, through the important and symbolic achievements of the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials, we in effect declared that war and violence as simply politics by other means is no longer acceptable to our cultural ethos. The horrors and devastation of the Second World War prompted a paradigm shift in thinking. The seeds had been planted towards the realization of an international criminal justice system. The General Assembly of the newly created United Nations was quick to adopt the principles set out in the judgment of the International Military Tribunal and to request the International Law Commission to prepare a draft code of offenses against the peace and security of mankind. Upon adopting the Genocide Convention the following year in 1948, the Assembly further requested the Commission to study the desirability and possibility of establishing an international criminal court to try perpetrators of genocide and other international crimes. However, as we know, the world was not yet ready to transform such a landmark achievement into a lasting institution. The dynamics of the Cold War and the bipolar system in which the world was divided produced mass atrocities in Europe, Latin America, Asia, and Africa. The latter was still very much under the rule of colonialism and apartheid. The world's political landscape was not yet ready to permit that necessary leap forward for humanity. In the end, the world would wait for almost half a century more and would witness two genocides, first in the former Yugoslavia and then in Rwanda, before the United Nations Security Council decided to create 
the UN and ad hoc tribunals of ICTY and the ICTR. The sense of urgency that gripped the international community in the early 1990s was similarly reflected in the request of the General Assembly in 1993 for the International Law Commission to complete its work on the draft statute for a permanent international criminal court. The Commission presented its final draft in 1994, paving the way for the Rome negotiations. The Ark of Justice, which started during the modern era in Nuremberg, thus continued towards Rome. And finally, in Rome in 1998, the seemingly impossible was realized. More than 120 states, supported by the robust activism of civil society and victims groups, created an international criminal court, a permanent independent court with jurisdiction over genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes, and perhaps soon over the crime of aggression or crimes against peace, also a unique legacy of Nuremberg. The bricks had been laid for the creation of a global system based on the international rule of law. The Rome Statute establishing the ICC created, in a sense, a global criminal justice system to address atrocity crimes based on the interaction between the ICC as a permanent judicial body and states, supported by relevant international and regional organizations and civil society institutions. This interaction is based on two key concepts, complementarity and cooperation. The founders of the Rome Statute also clearly recognized the intrinsic link between peace and justice, and that atrocity crimes, as the preamble of the statute states, threaten the peace, security, and well-being of the world. Additionally, the Rome Statute legal framework provides for a workable relationship between peace and justice efforts. Indeed, peace and justice are complementary and sustainable, and durable peace cannot be achieved without addressing impunity for atrocity crimes. Under the Rome Statute, substantive international criminal law had been codified into one detailed text, and the authority has been vested in the ICC's Office of the Prosecutor to exercise jurisdiction where it has, where it, has it and states to fail to carry out their primary responsibilities to conduct genuine proceedings at the national level. Under these circumstances, the prosecutor is then able to rely on national authorities' cooperation for the purpose of its own investigations and prosecutions. Unlike the mandates of other international criminal tribunals, the Rome Statute, which is the court's founding treaty, does not predefine specific situations for investigations. It is the office of the prosecutor itself, with the blessing of the court's chambers where required that ultimately determines, without fear or favor, when and where the court should intervene in accordance with set statutory criteria. This is the essence of my office's preliminary examination work. Given the immense responsibilities placed upon the office of the prosecutor, Article 42 of the Rome Statute rightly establishes that the office must act independently and that the prosecutor must be a person of high moral character 
and have the requisite skills and competence to lead the office. Once elected by the Assembly of States Parties, the prosecutor must act independently and hold office for a non-renewable term of nine years. Finally, once elected, the prosecutor does not represent his or her country of nationality, but rather the office of the prosecutor and its mandate as per the Rome Statute, which he or she must carry out in full independence and impartiality. Given that the office of the prosecutor is very much the driving engine of the court, and in light of its complex mandate, in my view, it is critical to the, it is critical to the vitality and credibility of the institution for the prosecutor to be fully independent and impartial and espouse the highest standards of professional ethics and integrity. Perhaps the late Robert Jackson, former chief U.S. prosecutor at Nuremberg, said it best when he articulated, and I quote, a sensitiveness to fair play and sportsmanship is perhaps the best protection against the abuse of power. And the citizen's safety lies in the prosecutor who tempers zeal with human kindness, who seeks truth and not victims, who serves the law and not factional purposes, and who approaches his task with humility. Let me now turn to the substance of our work. The factors set out in Article 53.1 A and C, A to C of the Rome Statute, establish the legal framework of my office's preliminary examination work. This important provision provides that, in order to determine whether there is a reasonable basis to proceed with an investigation into the situation, the prosecutor must consider jurisdiction, temporal, either territorial or personal, and material jurisdiction. Also the issue of admissibility, which is complementarity, what the national authorities are doing, if anything, to address the crimes, and also gravity. Are the crimes grave enough to warrant the intervention of the ICC? And finally, the interest of justice. Guided by this statutory criteria, I will typically open a preliminary examination of a situation based on an independent analysis of reliable information provided by individuals or groups, states, intergovernmental or non-governmental organization. What we call, this is what we call the Article 15 communications. This person to a referral from a state party or the United Nations Security Council or following a declaration accepting the exercise of jurisdiction by the court pursuant to Article 12.3 of the Rome Statute, which is lodged by a state party, which is not a party to the statute. During each preliminary examination, regardless of the situation and the manner in which it has come to my attention, my office follows an independent and impartial legal assessment guided by the statutory criteria established by the Rome Statute. It should be recalled that the office does not enjoy investigative powers at the preliminary examination stage. Its findings are therefore preliminary in nature only and may be reconsidered in the light of new facts or evidence. Since assuming office, I have placed added emphasis on the importance of our preliminary examination activities and have ensured that we make every effort 
to arrive at a determination to whether to open an investigation as soon as practically possible. In 2016, this year, I opened a preliminary examination of the situation in Burundi. I also announced the opening of a preliminary examination of the situation in Gabon, following the receipt of a referral by the Gabonese authorities. This referral has brought the total number of referrals, all by African states parties, to seven. And I see such self-referrals as a sign of trust in the ICC as a legal institution and commitment to ensuring accountability for serious crimes. In 2015, I opened preliminary examinations into the situation of Palestine, and in the previous year, I reopened the preliminary examination into the situation of Iraq based on new information received by the office. My office is thus currently conducting preliminary examinations of situations across the globe, more specifically in Afghanistan, Colombia, Guinea, Iraq over the alleged detainee abuse by UK forces, Nigeria, Palestine, Ukraine and respecting the registered vessels of Comoros, Greece and Cambodia. Final determinations with respect to the situation in Afghanistan and the Comoros referral will be reached in the very near future. Much as the goal of the preliminary examinations is to reach a fully informed determination of whether there is a reasonable basis to proceed with an investigation. By their very nature, preliminary examinations also provide an occasion for the Office of the Prosecutor to encourage genuine national proceedings, taking into account the state's primary responsibility for the investigation and prosecution of crimes. For example, this can be achieved through the Office's public statements or by sending regular assessment missions to the state concerned to monitor relevant national proceedings and by sharing of information with the authorities when possible and appropriate. In this regard, Guinea is particularly helpful example. Where the national authorities have been endeavoring to deliver justice with support by my office and other international and regional actors to the victims of the 28th September 2009 massacre in the stadium of his capital, Conakry, and in particular to the numerous victims of sexual and gender-based crimes. Once my office determines that there is a reasonable basis to proceed to open an investigation, it will not hesitate to take that next step with the authorization of the ICC's pretrial chamber where required by the statute. When deciding whether to open an investigation, my office, as with any decision it makes, will base its decision solely on the law and the information available, and will not take into account any other consideration extraneous to the Rome Statute legal criteria. Geographical or regional balance or any other political consideration do not factor into my office's decision making. Since the start of its operation in 2003, the Office of the Prosecutor has initiated investigations in 10 situations in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Uganda, two situations in the Central African Republic, Darfur, Libya, Kenya, Cote d'Ivoire, Mali, and most recently in Georgia. 
The majority of these situations were brought to my attention through referrals by the authorities of the states concerned. Across these situations, apart from the second investigation in the Central African Republic and the investigation in Georgia, cases have been presented before the chambers of the ICC. Over the years, we have had notable successes in the courtroom, such as the conviction of Mr. Thomas Lubangadilo in our first case related to the situation in the DRC for committing the war crimes of, the, of enlistment and conscription of children under the age of 15 into his patriotic force for the liberation of Congo and using them to participate actively in hostilities. We were able to make use of the Rome Statute legal framework to highlight the severity of the issue of child soldiers through our successful prosecution of the case. Another conviction of note concerns the case against Mr. Germain Katanga, also in relation to the situation in the DRC, where the judges found the accused guilty on charges of crimes against humanity, of murder and war crimes, including attacking a civilian population and pillaging. The office has, however, also had some critical setbacks, such as the acquittal of Mr. Matthew Ngujolo Chui, the former leader of the National Integrationist Front in the DRC, the termination of the case against Mr. William Samuel Ruto and Mr. Joshua Arab Sang, and also the withdrawal of charges against Mr. Uhuru Kenyatta, all in the Kenya situation. Based on these early experiences, my aim since assuming office as prosecutor in 2012, and to a great extent still today, has been to significantly improve the quality and the efficiency of the office's investigations and prosecutions. In order to do so, I have been implementing from the start of my tenure a number of important strategic changes as elaborated in my office's publicly available strategic plans for 2012 to 2015 and for 2016 to 2018. An effective office of the prosecutor at the ICC must be continuously learning office, which engages in regular self-assessment. These changes are aimed at enabling my office to investigate more effectively in complex and often difficult environments and to respond to expectations of the ICC judges and the standards we are setting for ourselves. For example, instead of incident-driven investigations, we have moved to the concept of an in-depth, open-ended investigations while still maintaining a clear investigative focus. We have been expanding and diversifying our collection of evidence, using more varied sources and more sophisticated methods of investigations so as to consistently meet the necessary evidentiary threshold. We have also been endeavoring to be trial ready by the time we bring cases before the chambers and certainly by the time we come to the hearing on confirmation of charges. In some situations, it may be necessary to build cases upwards gradually by investigating and prosecuting a limited number of lower or mid-level perpetrators, but with a view to reaching those allegedly most responsible for the crimes. In the past year or two, we have been starting to see the fruits of these changes as the percentage of charges confirmed and the rate of conviction have significantly increased.
In 2016 alone, we managed to secure seven convictions. In June of 2016, Mr. Jean-Pierre Bemba Gombo, the President and Commander-in-Chief of the Movement for the Liberation of Congo, was convicted for the crimes of rape, murder, and pillaging committed by his troops in the Central African Republic. This case set an important judicial precedent at the ICC where the responsibility of commanders for the conduct of their troops was clearly established. Also from the perspective of combating sexual and gender-based crimes, a policy priority for my tenure, this case provided a critical contribution. I will speak more about this in a moment. In October of 2016, in a case related to a aforementioned case, Mr. Jean-Pierre Bemba and four other accused were found guilty of various offenses against the administration of justice. Mr. Bemba and other perpetrators were found guilty for having committed the offenses of corruptly influencing 14 defense witnesses and presenting false evidence before the court. Mr. Bemba and the co-defendants have not yet been sentenced in this case. This case, too, is an important precedent, as our aim was to demonstrate that such acts would not be tolerated in the court's proceedings, hopefully deterring the commission of such offenses which obstruct the course of justice and fair trials. In the Mali situation, we have obtained a final conviction in September of 2016 in the case against Mr. Ahmed Al-Faki Al-Mahdi. The case represents the first time that the destruction of historic monuments and buildings dedicated to religion have been prosecuted as a war crime at the ICC. It was also significant for being the first case involving a guilty plea. Through this case, the office's goal was to stress the severity of these crimes and our commitment to confront this scourge through our work. In fact, I have also decided to focus a forthcoming comprehensive public policy on this issue mapping out and strategizing how best we can investigate and prosecute these crimes and work with partners to address what we deem to be a serious crime under the statute. I consider such policy work critically important as I feel that the ICC, through the Rome Statute's legal framework, is uniquely placed to consider and address particular crimes and serve as an example or as a helpful partner for other actors at the international, regional, and national level in their efforts to address these very serious crimes. Policies can also help strengthen trust and respect for the office by ensuring transparency and predictability in our operations. As such, in the conduct of my office's core functions, I have vowed from as early as my inaugural statement to strengthen and prioritize the investigation and prosecution of sexual and gender-based crimes as well as crimes against children, crimes that are often underreported in situations of conflict and have a devastating effect on our societies, hitting hard those most vulnerable. These policies are already bearing fruit, as shown by some of the convictions I have discussed. The Rome Statute, in fact, specifically requires me to take into account the nature of these crimes. As such, to give meaning to the importance I attach to these issues, the Office of the Prosecutor has issued a policy paper on sexual and gender-based crimes 
in 2014, and a policy paper on children in 2016. In addition to providing clarity on my office's own application of the legal framework provided by the Rome Statute and promote a gender-sensitive and children-sensitive approach across my office and its activities, it is my hope that these policies also serve as reference documents for national jurisdictions in their efforts to adopt, formulate, or amend domestic legislation and refine their practices where deemed necessary to better equip themselves to confront such crimes. Against this background, it may be interesting to note that on the 6th of December 2016, the trial against Mr. Dominic Ongwen commenced at the ICC. Mr. Ongwen is the alleged brigade commander of the senior brigade of the infamous Lord's Resistance Army. He stands trial for multiple charges of war crimes and crimes against humanity allegedly committed in Uganda, including sexual slavery, rape, forced marriage as an inhumane act, and the conscription and use of children under the age of 15 to participate actively in hostilities. As one final policy promulgated by my office in 2016, I wish to mention our policy paper on case selection and prioritization. In the discharge of its mandate, the Office of the Prosecutor exercises its discretion in determining which cases should be selected and prioritized for investigation and prosecution. And the purpose of this paper is, however, to ensure that the exercise of such discretion in all instances is guided by sound, fair, and transparent principles and criteria. Now, having discussed some of the ICC's caseload, and related policies, I wish to devote a few words to the importance of cooperation as a key factor for the success in the ICC's endeavor to bring justice for victims of the most heinous crimes. Part 9 of the Rome Statute is specifically dedicated to international cooperation and judicial assistance and requires states' parties to cooperate fully with the ICC in its investigation and prosecution of crimes. In order for it to be meaningful and effective, such cooperation has to be concrete and timely, or otherwise risk impairing directly the ICC's activities. As cooperation is generally speaking largely forthcoming, I wish to express appreciation for the assistance extended to my office by the majority of states throughout the years. Without such support from its states' parties, including notably African states parties, the ICC would not have recorded important successes such as the arrest and surrender of Mr. Thomas Lubanga Dilo, Mr. Boscon Taganda, Mr. Dominic Ongwen, and Mr. Ahmad Al Mahdi, to mention a few. Neither would my office have secured the necessary evidence to advance with its cases. Similarly, the United Nations plays an important role in assisting my office's work through operational assistance in various situations in accordance with the arrangements made pursuant to negotiated relationship agreement between the ICC and the United Nations. The relationship between the court and the United Nations will remain critical in the advancement of the International Criminal Justice Project in this new century and beyond. While we have seen a number of successful arrest operations in the past, 
cooperation efforts of states to arrest and surrender the 13 persons for whom arrest warrants remain pending continue, be, continue to be a critical missing component for the effective implementation of the court's mandate. As a result of this deficit, victims continue to be denied the justice they so rightly deserve. The collective community of states ought to consider what measures can be taken to ensure execution of the arrest warrants from the elimination of non-essential contacts with individuals subject to arrest warrants to the consistent active expression in bilateral and multilateral meetings of political and diplomatic support for the court's decisions. Indeed, while the ICC's overall cooperation experience is positive, I do wish to call upon all the states who have not yet cooperated with the ICC and my office to do so and timelessly respond to any requests submitted to them. With 10 situations under investigations, including a number of pretrial, trial, and appeal cases going, going on, as well as the 10 situations currently under preliminary examinations, the demands on my office are undeniably high. In fact, the demands continue to grow. Every day, my office receives communications from individuals and groups concerning alleged crimes in situations of conflict around the globe. We continue to receive referrals from state authorities in political arenas such as the United Nations Security Council and the United Nations Human Rights Council, calls for referral for situations such as those in Syria or Yemen are made on a regular basis. The reality is that my office and the ICC as a whole cannot address all these demands. This, in part, relates to its jurisdictional limitations. Many states are still not a party to the ICC Rome Statute, and more advocacy efforts are required to increase the ICC's membership to ensure that all citizens of the world benefit from the protection of the law. But some of it, as a matter of reality, relates to the ICC's limited financial capacity. Already, my office has had to delay investigations in order not to compromise on the quality of its work. Our resources are fairly thinly spread across the current situations with ramifications for not only our ability to act as fast as we would like, but also on many of the office's staff. While mindful of the state's party's financial constraints, continued financial support will be necessary to implement the mandate I'm entrusted with or risk the necessity for further painful choices and disappointments to the victims as a result. The ICC is just not just another international organization to which states pay membership dues. It is a court of law. We need to meet the court's resource needs. The framing of discussions needs to be changed. The cost of delivering justice is very small in comparison to the cost of conflicts and the suffering of victims. An investment in justice is well worth its return, and it is one that cannot be adequately weighed in purely quantitative terms. That said, we should also be mindful that the ICC is not a panacea for ending impunity. Its role is limited. Indeed, to investigating and prosecuting a handful of perpetrators of massive crimes per situation. Therefore,
To avoid an impunity gap, more collaborative efforts are necessary. The development with partners of a coordinated investigative and prosecutorial strategy is in fact a key strategic goal identified by my office in its strategic plan for 2016 to 2018. Steps have been taken to identify and bring together national and regional authorities in charge of law enforcement. The idea of better coordination is generating enthusiasm amongst the various interlocutors and bodies, and we need to keep and build on this momentum to develop further promising prospects for the way forward in our joint efforts to address impunity. We see more states reaching out to my office. We are receiving an increasing number of requests from states and other entities, including situation countries, for information concerning individuals and or incidents with links to an ongoing ICC investigations and proceedings. Where appropriate, we are sharing more information and evidence to put such partners in a position to effectively start and conduct an investigation or prosecution, provided that standards of due process and fair trial are in place, that there exists adequate protection for witnesses, and that any confidentiality agreements are respected. The office will further strengthen this sharing as we continue our work with partners. Of course, I duly recognize the risk of overlap between initiatives. We should take practical steps to avoid duplication of efforts and work towards greater harmonization. As such, my office will continue to perform its core functions with the highest standards of quality and efficiency. However, in doing so, we will also contribute to existing coordination platforms such as Eurojust and share with partners the spin-offs of our work so they may reap the fruits of our labor too. For example, we share and provide advice on our standards of investigation and prosecution so that through partners, others may benefit from our experience. As such, we have, for instance, assisted in, review, in the review of the United Nations Manual on the Effective Prevention and Investigation of Extralegal, Arbitrary, and Summary Executions. My office is indeed willing to share expertise and best practices when possible and at zero cost concerning the conduct of investigations witness protection, and evidence handling. Also, the promulgation of various policy papers, as I mentioned earlier in my lecture, is an example of such efforts. I firmly believe that in unison, we can move forward. Ending impunity for mass crimes is not the preserve of any one institution. It is a common goal that ties us all together in our shared quest for justice, peace, and stability the world over. In light of the need for more cohesive efforts and continuous dialogue between the ICC and regional and international actors to effectively combat impunity, as well as the ever-increasing calls for justice around the world and the demands placed upon my office, I feel compelled to comment on the recent notifications on the UN Secretary General by three African states to withdraw from the Rome Statute, and more generally, on the ongoing debate on ICC-Africa relations. 
While a critical interrogation of international criminal justice in Africa and elsewhere is warranted and welcome, any such discourse must be informed and objectively undertaken, devoid of political posturing. It cannot surely be an acceptable fact of modern day life in Africa or elsewhere that during war and conflict, women and indeed also men are mercilessly raped, children abducted, drugged and used as killing machines or as sex slaves. Neither can we continue to tolerate large-scale killings and displacement of innocent African civilians. And indeed, it cannot be accepted that those who seek to gain or to retain power at any cost can do so by committing mass atrocities against civilians and not be held individually accountable for such crimes. Failure to hold to account those responsible for these crimes, irrespective of their status, would constitute a denial of the victim's rights to justice. The reality we face is that in our times, the African continent has been inflicted with large-scale atrocities that shock the conscience of humanity, sadly with alarming frequency. Currently, a large number of United Nations peacekeeping missions are in Africa. In each of these conflicts, untold suffering has been inflicted on innocent civilians. While skeptics and naysayers have been at pains to question the legitimacy of the ICC, the facts point to the contrary. It is clear that without Africa's support in the period leading up to and during the Rome Conference, the ICC would not have been conceived. In fact, in February of 1999, it was no other than an African country, Senegal, that became the first state party to ratify the Rome Statute. This was a historically important step and a hugely important one symbolically, which was soon followed by other states around the world. Not only has the African continent and individual African states being instrumental in the creation and functioning of the ICC, African states continue to provide the critical support and cooperation for ICC operation, including with protection of victims and witnesses. There can be no doubt that we all want to see a prosperous and more peaceful continent in which democratic values, the rule of law, and human rights are universally respected and advanced. Holding those responsible for these crimes accountable is key to the continent's success. We must acknowledge that fighting impunity for atrocity crimes and cultivating the rule of law are fundamental preconditions for a more peaceful and prosperous African continent. In fact, for any continent. After all, how can societies plagued by recurring conflict prosper? attract investment or facilitate an environment conducive to economic growth and productivity. History has shown that establishing the rule of law and a healthy, well-functioning judicial system are fundamental prerequisites to political stability and economic growth in any country. While in times of conflict, war economies may thrive, the net result is damage to the infrastructure, overall economy, development and investment in the country. And as we travel an arduous but necessary path to a more just and enlightened world,
I am confident that despite the recent setbacks, Africa will continue to play its crucial role to preserve the dignity and sanctity of human rights on the continent and across the globe. Notwithstanding the challenges inherent in the fight against impunity for atrocity crimes, I wish to conclude this lecture by observing that the ICC and the international criminal justice system it is aiming to create will persevere and thrive. I firmly believe that one of humanity's proudest moments must surely be the creation of the ICC against all odds. In historical terms, the establishment of the court is an immense achievement and represents the realization of a centuries-long pursuit for the betterment of humanity and a crucial pillar for a rule-based global order. As such, it deserves our utmost commitment and support. International criminal justice is a long-term project, and the support and membership of the states should be maintained and enlarged to bring perpetrators of Rome Statute crimes to justice and protect victims across the world. My realism is informed by my optimism, which is itself informed by the progress humanity has made in the field of international criminal justice in the past century. And while archaic vices of tribalism, sectarianism, and bigotry continue to taint the pages of history, I am confident that universal values of human rights and yearning for their widespread protection and calls for ending impunity for mass atrocities will increasingly define the 21st century. The court will continue to do its judicial work, and it is here to stay. I say this not because it is a hopeful aspiration of a supporter, but because of what it stands for as a powerful and necessary idea, because the ICC meets vital needs for humanity's progress in the modern era, because without the court, we will regress into an even more turbulent, lawless world where impunity reigns unchecked and chaos, volatility and violence are seen as inevitable norms. And this humanity will not allow. We owe it to ourselves, to our children, and to the future generations to nurture the ICC so that it carries on with its crucial work to fight against impunity and to foster the Rome Statute system of international criminal justice. I would like to recall here the sage words of the late Dag Hammarskjöld, the second Secretary General of the United Nations, where he stated that it appears, and I'm quoting, on the basis of daily experience that the world of order and justice for which we are striving will never be ours unless we are willing to give it the broadest and the firmest possible foundations in law, end quote. I can only echo this important sentiment. What is required today, more than ever, is greater support for the ICC, its independent and impartial work, and the international rule of law, not less. The ICC is in many ways the byproduct of a global awakening in the past century that subscribes to the view that the horrors witnessed during war and conflict must no longer be tolerated, but rather met with the full force of the law. That during war and conflict, the laws must no longer remain silent. We must only build on this momentum 
in a forward trajectory and not regress. Any act that may undermine the global movement towards greater accountability for atrocity crimes and a rule-based international order must be avoided. What is required is greater dialogue and cooperation to jointly strengthen the evolving international criminal justice system. Taking bold and meaningful action through the vector of the law to protect citizenry from mass scourge of war and mass violence demonstrates political leadership, not weakness. Under the critical watch of history, we must not allow, never again, to ring hollow to, the taunt, to taunt the memory of the victims of atrocity crimes. We must do all we can to ensure that security, stability, and the protective embrace of the law become a reality to be relished by all in all corners of the world. Our responsibilities remain great, but our resolve must endure. Thank you.